Well, like I said, I mean, we need the Bible to speak to us, not us to speak to the Bible. If there's something like this that offends us, well, like John Wimber used to say, who was a good uh, Californian, um, mm -hmm. God will offend the mind to touch the heart. Mm. So if our mind is offended by something in the Bible, then we need to look at what God's addressing in our heart. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Theology. It is so good to have you with us. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Dwell Bible. Dwell Bible launched in 2018, and their mission has been and still is to help Christians rediscover the ancient practice of listening to Scripture through their beautiful digital experience. Dwell offers more than 20 hand-picked voices which are very soothing and relaxing. And 11 translations, English Standard Version, New King James, New International, International Children's Bible, and more. And now Dwell, listen up if you're a pastor, if you're a church leader, Dwell has built a platform to help you keep people in the church rooted in God's word every day. So you can invite your church with easy to use tools. You can share built by you scripture playlists and plans to encourage reflection on, let's say, the previous Sunday's sermon, or keep up with your church's Bible reading plan wherever they find themselves in that. Dwell offers a 30-day trial on all new accounts, and you can get started by going to dwellbible.com slash good or texting G-O-O-D to 39383. Again, that's dwellbible.com slash good or texting good to 39383. Thank you, Dwell, so much for sponsoring our show. We love you. We love your app. And we highly encourage people to download it from the App Store. It really is a beautiful experience and genuinely helpful to listen to Scripture. I am joined today by my illustrious <laughs> co-host. I've never used that word before. I don't know why I went with illustrious just then. Sometimes I use words and I'm not even sure what they mean. And then I have to quickly look it up in the dictionary on my, my Apple Spotlight to make sure that I didn't use the wrong word. So I did. And illustrious means well-known and respected. So I'm on safe ground. I'm joined by, by my illustrious co-host, the one and only David Campbell. I just got off of an airplane, so I'm a little loopy in the head. David, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm recovering from a cold that I caught by associating with uh, the Theos crew in Nashville a couple weeks ago. And... I'm blaming them for it. I'm honestly surprised that a cold is all you caught. Well, uh, I, I managed to keep my doctrine here. <laughs> just just did they? Did they? Uh, did they try and convince you to go on their memes podcast? Uh, they didn't even bother to try. That, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, I know nothing is impossible with God, but that's impossible. But that would be a stretch. It genuinely, ain't going to happen. <laughs> So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off a new segment called How to Read Your Bible in 2023, which involved a, uh, a discussion between you and I and Chris Palmer, uh, which in the moment to me felt a little bit more heated than it actually came across when I re-listened to the episode back. Um, and I think Chris made some wonderful points, really helped me to think about things from a new perspective. Um, or I would say he put words um, 
probably to some ways of thinking that maybe I naturally do being brought up in the charismatic church. Um, and I think also too, there, are, you know, uh, some important things said about the importance of, um, how we approach the Bible in our reading and, um, that going after what a text is saying is a good pursuit. And even though it's not always easy, it is something worthwhile doing. I want to continue that segment, uh, today, and we'll do it again next week as well. We have a, uh, a guest joining us, um, that we'll announce next week. We're excited about, um, and he wants to, to join in on the How to Read the Bible in 2023 segment as well. But I want to read a segment from the book of Acts. Um, last time we did the Gospel of Matthew. So I think I'm going to do Acts. Uh, we'll do, we did a Gospel. We're going to do Acts. And then uh, we'll do uh, an epistle next. And then maybe we'll close this segment with uh, your favorite book. We'll do a passage from the book of Revelation. So let's read this text and I really just, here's my heart. What I want to do, I hate that I just said, here's my heart. That's such a Christian leader thing to say. Here's what I want to do. I really want to help people uh, read their Bibles in a way that, you know, goes beyond just trying to um, ask the question, what is this saying to me? I loved what you said last week, one interpretation, many applications, I think that that is a worthwhile pursuit, even if the proper interpretation uh, requires a lot of conversation happening in community, a lot of digging to find. Um, and so I want to help people read a text and, and ask the right questions in order to try to arrive at what the interpretation is. Um, so we don't need to go a mile deep, but let's at least help people take some steps in their Bible reading. I'm reading out of Acts chapter five, beginning in verse one. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died in great fear, seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So this is a very interesting event that's recorded in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira lie about an offering. Um, and then God presumably kills them as a result. So what are we to make of that? How do we, how do we arrive at what the scripture is saying? Well, of course, part of our problem is that we don't live in the reality of the immediate presence of God in the way that the first church in Jerusalem did. Uh, and uh, what do you so mean by that? Well, if you 
have ever had the experience of being in a revival or a move of God or a time when God was moving in power, you realize that that's, those are special times. Uh, they're not um, the times that all of us live in. Um, and over the course of my life, I've had, you know, the opportunity of being in several of those situations and God starts to move in power and manifest his presence in a way that, you know, doesn't normally happen on Sunday morning. And the whole life of that early church was bathed in the Pentecostal presence of God. Uh, and uh, God was, uh, you know, it, it was a turning point in history. It was an extraordinary time. And uh, it seems that, you know, I mean, in Acts chapter 5, it records that people were afraid to join the apostles in their daily meetings in Solomon's portico where the power of God is operating. The unsaved were bringing the sick and their people were being healed all over the place, but it just says that some were afraid to join them. And uh, who were there some that were afraid to join them? You know, uh, were they actually already believers or were they people who weren't believers or what? But the point is that there was a fear present, fear of God. And I think that... Uh, uh, we don't, I, I think, you know, whatever we do have in our churches today, we often don't have enough of the fear of God. Hmm. Uh, but the, the fear of God existed then because God was moving in this kind of way. And it wasn't just in Jerusalem, but it was in Corinth as well, because Paul says, that is why some of you are, uh, many of you are sick and some have died. It's because of division in the body. Uh, and it's hard for us to grasp this, perhaps because we live at a much more superficial level, you know, um, we, so when, when God comes in, in his presence, uh, we in the charismatic world, you know, tend to look for the bells and whistles. They, uh, we want, um, you know, wonderful healings and we want to feel this and that, the next thing. And we want to see salvations, obviously. And none of those things are bad, but along with the manifest presence of God comes a manifestation of his holiness as well and his truth. Mm -hmm. And that was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, that they were, if they, if they, if that had not been dealt with, um, then they would have brought a foundation of, uh, of, of uh, un untruth of lying, uh, of deception into the midst of that first church mm -hmm. and that's what god wouldn't tolerate where you know that where where people come in and say they've done one thing in order to make themselves look good and actually they're lying mm -hmm. um then god is going to deal with that and uh, uh god dealt with it in a very severe way i mean it's up to us to draw the conclusions i mean we you know, as best we can, um, uh, we don't expect to see that sort of thing happening. Um, but any of us who have been in ministry long enough can look at the lives of people who have sort of spit God in the face after he's done great things for them and see that things didn't go well for them, even though they didn't exactly drop dead, mm -hmm. you know, like Ananias and Sapphira did, 
Mm -hmm. um, it's quite possible that the, the judgment of God was, was working out in mm -hmm. their lives. Or the other way of looking at it is where Paul says, we, I've handed people over to Satan for the destruction of the body mm -hmm. um, so that the spirit might be saved. That actually it's not, it, it, is it God striking someone down or is it someone, you know, like Judas who has walked with Jesus and then turns into rebellion and is really handed over to the enemy or has handed himself over to the enemy. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, we, we have to read it if it offends us. The question is, the question we need to ask is, why is this text offending us? You know, it isn't this text is offensive uh, and therefore the, the, the text has a problem. The, the, the question is, what is wrong with us that we aren't getting it? Great. Let me come in and just provide maybe some some thoughts that hold up some of your conclusions, because I think a lot of what you're saying is similar to some conclusions that I would uh, draw. You initially caught me off guard with your claim that we're not living in the same manifest presence that the first church was living in. Um, and I'm, I, I understand what you're saying there. Uh, and I have to acknowledge by experience that not all times and places are experiencing God's presence in the same way. So I, I think a couple of things that I hear in what you're saying, number one, uh, one of the first places you went is you, you zoomed out a little bit and you started talking about other things that chapter five in the book of Acts are talking about. So the general fear of the Lord, people being scared to join the church, um, and I thought that was, you know, that's a really good thing. So we could draw out, a, you know, a good principle for people that are listening. If you're reading a passage and you're confused by the passage, don't stop at the passage. Keep reading the whole chapter. Try to gain as much context as you can. And then you zoomed out even further and you started talking about, well, what's been happening in the church in Jerusalem up until chapter five. So now you're going back to chapters one through four. You're looking obviously at the arrival of the Holy Spirit upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Um, and you're noticing, wow, they're really experiencing a great move of God here. Maybe there's something contextual to what's going on in the early church that can give us some clues about why God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira the way that he did. Now, we might not all arrive at the exact same conclusion that, that you're pointing out in terms of uh, a great move of God. God is really preserving holiness, so he, he judged with a great deal of severity in this instance. Um, just depending, I guess, on our own uh, patterns of thought. But we would probably arrive at something similar, that God's doing something special. His church is really valuable, and God doesn't treat sin lightly. You pointed to some other examples. So now you're, look, you're thinking, is there anywhere else in the New Testament that can corroborate some of what I'm thinking about? You're talking about 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is talking about uh, uh, handing somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved. Um, and you're talking about, is it first Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about the Corinthians abuse of the Lord's supper and how that's leading to their death and sickness. And so that's maybe another good principle for people to draw out. Don't just try to gain as much context in the book, but maybe be thinking, is there other places in the scripture that really clearly connect to what this scripture seems to be saying? Would you say that so far, those are some good principles that people can, uh, can utilize to try to draw out the proper meaning? or at least a responsible application for a passage. Yeah. And we have to remember God is the same God as he was on Mount Sinai and they were scared stiff. 
no one would go near Mount Sinai. Now, having said that, Hebrews teaches us that, you know, you've not drawn near to the mountain with the blazing fire and the earthquake and what the, and whatnot, but you've come to Mount Zion. But interestingly, in Hebrews, in that context of you've come to Mount Zion and the, the, the blood of Christ, the assembly of the, of the saints and so on, it still says um, we must worship God reverently and with fear for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12 at the end. So, you know, God is the same God and uh, an aspect of the understanding and appreciating who God is and worshiping him is the fear of God, living in the fear of God. That's not not putting God up as some uh, nasty tyrant that for no reason strikes out at us, but just that God is completely holy and different and unlike us. And uh, he has a plan that he's not going to consult us, you know, in developing it and he won't be stopped. And this is part of the issue with, you know, whether it be with Dathan and Abiram and, and, and the golden calf and Korah and all those rebellions in the, in the old covenant, uh, or whether it be with, um, at, Ananias and Sapphira, God is not going to be stopped in his plan. And I, I think that, you know, Ananias and Sapphira were obviously wealthy people. They were uh, people of influence within the that first congregation. And they wanted to make a name for themselves and increase their influence through mm -hmm. money. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I mean, there's more than a few churches that have been ruined by the fact that the people who have the money buy their way into positions of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the, the whole set of values of that church is corrupted. And, uh, and so that's what Ananias and Sapphira were, you know, they were influence peddling and they, they were trying to do it in the church. They tried to do it with God, but they were trying to do it in the church. And mm -hmm. I think if they'd succeeded, not only would they have succeeded through lying. Um, and the reason they succeeded was because they probably contributed a large amount of money, uh, even though they withheld some. But they they contributed enough that would get them the goal that they wanted, which was to you know in, in, increase their influence in the congregation make themselves look good and more spiritual and whatnot um and probably gain con some measure of control and and so uh you know there was uh, deception involved in it but also there was ungodly motivations and uh so we just have to consider all these things that uh you know that the problem that the church is in the state it's in, or many churches in the states in, is because we've given in to influence peddling and uh, the influence of money, and um, and we've allowed deception and lying to come in, and we we, we don't discipline. Uh, church discipline is very lax. Mm. Uh, and all these things. That's certainly one thing that this passage could talk to us about. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's a, it's a great it's a great way of uh, you know mm -hmm. uh, conducting church discipline. You know, you you don't even you just walk in and God smites these people, mm -hmm. you know, and that's yeah. the end of them. But 
Um, you know, we have to be careful, obviously, in the way that we look at it, because God is judging us as well. Yeah, I think there's a couple things in what you're saying that would be good principles to draw out. Um, number one, you're drilling into what was the actual behavior of Ananias and Sapphira that brought about the, the outcome of their death. And the, the behavior was them bringing an offering. And you started talking about God's presence at Sinai and how they were to worship God with reverence. So that to me tells me that you're seeing this act as a, as an act of worship and, uh, Ananias and Sophia are, are, uh, improperly worshiping God. And when I say improperly, they are, uh, they're worshiping him in a way that he doesn't accept, which is worshiping hypo hypocritically. They're lying. Um, and so there's, there's some consequences there. So that's maybe something I might consider is, okay, this is, you know, there is something specific that Ananias and Sapphira did. Maybe I should do a bit of a study on what God has to say about us bringing him offerings, about us worshiping him. Um, and of course, our friend Nathan, I believe, has done a study on that and has written about it. The other thing that I also think to ask um, is, insofar as it's available to us, we should always ask, why did the author of this book, why did they write it? Now, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are, um, they're, I guess, a, you know, one of the easier places to ask this question because because Luke tells us in Acts chapter one, he says, "In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen." After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave more convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, which you've heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but in a few days, he'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the disciples gather around. Luke goes on. They're asking about, hey, when's the kingdom coming? And so um, there seems to be some... I don't know, some, some background that Luke is providing here. I, I'm going to, this book is about the kingdom and the, the, the breaking out of the kingdom going from Jerusalem in fulfilling that, that great commission. Um, so maybe that's a question that is worth answering. You know, we don't need to go in depth about that question right here and now, but that's at least a question I would ask is what is Luke intending to say? Um, because in, in that, now I'm thinking, okay, well, the church is a holy people, um, and God intends that the church re remain holy. And so if God had strong standards for Israel, he also has strong standards for his church. And that might explain um, this seemingly strange occurrence. Well, like I said, I mean, we need the Bible to speak to us, not us to speak to the Bible. And... Uh, um, if there's something like this that offends us, well, like John Wimber used to say, who was a good uh, Californian, um, mm -hmm. God will offend the mind to touch the heart. Mm. So if our mind is offended by something in the Bible, then we need to look at what God's addressing in our heart. Yep. Yep. Great. I also might look at, you know, some of the specific phrases, you know, Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias's heart. 
So I, I kind of want like that as a modern person in 2023, that phrase isn't immediately understandable to me. So I, I might try to dig into something like that. That sounds pretty urgent. Like that's a big problem. Satan has filled Ananias's heart. So maybe I want to look into a phrase like that. Um, something like I've lied to the Holy spirit. What does it mean to lie to the Holy spirit? Um, how, how does one do that? Cause I, if I'm lying to the Holy spirit, I kind of want to be aware of that. So I want to understand the severity of the problem so that I can understand the severity of the judgment. Otherwise I might walk away and go, I mean, go I God's not just. lying to the church leadership, which is mm. equated with lying to the Holy spirit because mm. the Holy Spirit is resident within the body. So they are lying to God's people. If we lie to God's people, then we're also attempting to lie to the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the Holy Spirit isn't going to let us get away with it. Um, but uh, I think money was the other aspect of it. They were lying about, about money. Uh, things, things related to money. And, and you know, they didn't have... The point is, they didn't have to... Um, it isn't, it isn't what they gave that was wrong. It's how, how they, how they, right. uh, lied about it. That's they, important. They could have given the amount that they gave and said, we sold our property for this and we'd like to give that. Right. And, and yep. that would have been fine, but mm -hmm. clearly they were trying to present something of themselves that we are people who have given everything and we have sacrificed everything. Right. So they were they were building a false, untrue spiritual picture of themselves mm -hmm. to the congregation, mm -hmm. which was the lie. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and and I think that is a serious thing. Well, you know, and, and related to it is the is the matter that because money, a lot, the love of money is a root of all evil things that they they quite quite it's quite conceivable that they were trying to gain influence for, for themselves by this self-presentation as mm -hmm. the biggest givers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you said that lying to the Holy Spirit is equivalent to lying to the church leadership. And I think that that's, that's, you're on really good grounds there because you could almost deduce that just from this passage alone. Because Peter goes on to say uh, that you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And so right. Peter almost interprets his own statement by letting us know the reason you've lied to God is because you've lied to us. It was by you lied to God through, <laughs> through lying to us. Um, and the us here is not just any human being. It's, um, it's, it's those who are, have been entrusted with leading it's, the church. It's like any other sin. I can, you know, I can sin against you, but in sinning against you as my brother, I am also sinning against the Lord because you're mm -hmm. part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. In all of this, one of the most basic things that I draw from it, even just in this conversation, is the root here is hypocrisy. They are, they are saying one thing, but have actually done another. And if there is anything that Jesus hates, it is hypocrisy. And he, he was constantly on the Pharisees about that about their hypocritical nature, how they presented one image, but were living something completely different. And so this is to me is 
it, it almost seems like one of the the earliest instance of of phar- Phariseeism. Is that a word? Can I say that Phariseeism? Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to come into the church, the hypocritical na- critical nature of the Pharisees, and God's He's not going to stand for that. A church is is not going to be full of hypocrites. Um, and, and that would make me think, you know, even going back to sinning against one another and connecting the sin against God, how Jesus so identifies himself with the church. that The church is not, is not Jesus's pet, you know, that he remembers to, to feed and give water to, but doesn't really care all that much about. It's like when, when, when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and he says, why are you persecuting me? You know, that's how identified Jesus is with his church. Uh, and we've been talking about that a little bit with this incarnation book, um, our union with Christ. That's not just individualistic. That's, that's as the people of God. Um, and so, you know, just by think these are all things that you could, before, before you even crack open a commentary, you could arrive at all of these ideas that we've been discussing just by having a solid knowledge of the new Testament alone. Um, and that's pretty special, I think. So I think number one, before you start drawing meaning out of the text, read the entire New Testament. Before you start drawing meaning out of the book of Acts, read the entire book of Acts and gain as much knowledge as you can uh, by observing the context, paying attention um, to things that you're confused about, write, and write them down, highlight them so you can think about them deeply in reference to other parts of the scripture. Okay, cool. I think that was helpful. Hopefully it was helpful for those of you who are listening. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll probably do this two more times because I just want to help you read the Bible better this year and draw a lot out of it. We're going to move into um, a discussion on chapter six on the incarnation of God. I believe that there's eight chapters to this book. So we're almost done with this. Um, but have gotten a substantial amount of feedback from you all about how much you have enjoyed this. And I have greatly enjoyed it. I mean, I cannot recommend this book enough to to you all, The Incarnation of God by John C. Clarke. Um, and I posted on my Instagram earlier this week as well, a, an accompanying book to it written by Marcus Peter Johnson, who's also a co-author on The Incarnation book uh, and deals with a lot of the same subject matter but it will help you in understanding what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So the general arc of this chapter is uh, first they're, they're talking about the nature of our union with Christ. So the basic truth that they've been presenting over and over again is that salvation is being joined to Jesus. It's our unification with Christ. So in this chapter, they're talking about the nature of that union uh, and, and the nature of that is both real. It's not just metaphorical, it's real and it's Trinitarian. And we'll talk about that. And then it talks about how we're united to Christ. You know, oftentimes we, we, um, we might hear reductionistic statements like we're saved by faith. So what, what does that mean? How does Christ save us with our faith? And then springing out of that, he starts to talk about how when we understand these two things properly, it helps us not to commoditize or I think the word they use is thingify the components of our salvation. So we see all of the salvific components, justification, sanctification, adoption are the three that they deal with in this chapter as in Christ, as opposed to things that we receive 
individually and independently from Christ. That's the arc of the chapter. Let's start with the nature of our union. Um, so the thing that I love the most about this is the Trinitarian aspect of it. How in being joined to Jesus means that we are brought into uh, the life of God. Not that we are deified, not that we ourselves become God, but that we get to enjoy the life that we are created to experience and enjoy. And that life is actually eternal life because God himself is eternal. And the life that he has enjoyed amongst his triune self is also eternal. That promise right there is the most compelling news I think anyone could ever hear. Any thoughts on that, David? No, I think you put it well. Moving from that, then they go into how we are united to Christ. And I think this is something that in reading this book, you would kind of be thinking in the back of your head the whole time, like, great. It sounds amazing to be un to be unified with him. How, how does that work exactly? Cause I can't see him. Um, <laughs> and I want it to be real, but it's all so mystical. So how, how does that work? And so the two examples they give, and I'll just set this up and let you talk about it is how we often think we're saved by the gospel or we're saved by faith. And that certainly those are true things to say, but what do we mean exactly when we say that? Because if we're not clear on what we mean, we might actually end up having a bit of a broken understanding of how salvation actually happens. Over to you. Yeah, they make uh, the statement here, which I think is an important one, uh, that the reformers, by, by that they mean uh, people like Luther and Calvin, never meant that faith is saving because one believes, but rather faith is saving because of the one whom faith receives. Um, so we're saved not because of some intrinsic power in our faith, but because our faith grasps and lays hold of Christ. And my old academic Excuse mentor, me. Charles Stanfield, in his commentary on Romans, and he's co commenting on Abraham, who in faith, you know, in hope against hope believed. And uh, in Romans chapter 4 and 20, um, that... Uh, um, uh, he, uh, whatever God had promised, he was able to also to perform. Um, but he makes the point here, uh, if I can find it, that, um, the faith, Paul's talking about Abraham's faith. He was believing, you know, against all the odds in, uh, relation to his having a son it was an it was a human impossibility it seemed um but he says it's it's that uh, uh the faith um uh the faith with which paul is concerned is not belief in the impossible just because it's impossible in other words he's he's not saying the magnitude of of faith of abraham's faith wasn't because it was he was able to have this incredible ability to believe in possible things. No, he's saying that Abraham's faith was powerful because it, 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 the power of it was not in his own believing. The power of it was in the promise. It, it's the promise on which faith rests, which is its power. The power of faith is not in our own believing or act of believing. The power of faith is in the promise of God. It's in the person of Christ. 
Faith exists because a person has been over, overpowered, held, and sustained by the promise of God. And I think this is a really powerful thing that we need to, the whole problem with the Word of Faith movement is the extreme emphasis on our act of believing. And it almost becomes divorced from the promises of God or from the Word of God or from the principles of God or even from God himself. You know, God is kind of an, an onlooker who's sitting by interestedly, obviously, looking on at uh, how hard we can believe and how hard we can believe is going to determine what happens to us. And God has kind of set this game up, you know, or this scenario up. But that is, that is completely unbiblical. Um, God draws us into uh, himself mm -hmm. and uh, our, our faith itself is a gift from God. We don't have any faith apart from what God gives us. And the power is not in our act of believing. It's in God and in his word itself. And so our act of believing is simply a response. It's simply saying, Lord, I can't do anything um, by my works to save myself. Even my, my act of believing is not going to go anywhere if you don't put power in it. And so, uh, uh, so the emphasis on faith has got to be in God and in the person of God. And I think that um, it takes a lot of the pressure off, you know, that, that um, I was saying this to a church last Sunday, that uh, with that, the desperate father that brought his demon possessed son mm -hmm. and uh, you know, uh, Jesus looks at him and the whole thing is in a mess and it's not going anywhere and the disciples have failed and all the rest of it and what's happening here and 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 the man says look he says uh when Jesus says well look he says anything is possible for him who believes and the man says I believe help my unbelief he mm -hmm. cries out in honesty and he falls at Jesus feet in the account the account in Matthew he falls at Jesus feet so his heart was a, a heart of a worshiper. He was motivated. He was desperate. Uh, that it, that that pushed him toward Christ. But he recognized that his own faith really was impotent. It was Christ who held the power, and and the Christ was like a magnet which drew this desperate man to himself. And so we have all these things in our life that we're battling with and that we're wanting God to do, um, and it, it's. Uh, uh, if we put it on people, well, it's all up to your act of believing. We're putting a psychological, emotional, and spiritual burden on them. We'll kill them, and it doesn't work. And then it gets divorced from who God is and their relationship with God, and they start asking God just for things that have nothing necessarily to do with the kingdom, and God doesn't answer their prayer. Then they walk away and blame God for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's wrong. Uh, so we just but, – but yet – but yet God is a God of power. He is a God who fulfills his word and his promises. But we, we need to come in that act of desperation. I believe, help my unbelief. My faith doesn't consist in how hard I believe can believe something, or if I have absolutely perfect belief that something is going to happen. My faith doesn't consist in, you know, I'm high as a kite, I'm, I'm flying in the spirit, and God's going to do anything for me that I ask. No, our faith consists in the desperate knowledge that only God can do anything.
-hmm. and that I need to fall on his feet and cry out and confess my impotence. I really love the, the, the truth that our faith in and of itself is not meritorious because one of the phrases that we hear so often is that we are saved by faith. And what is meant by that is that we are not saved by works. And yet if we, if we are off just a degree or so, then when we're say we're saved by faith, what we're actually saying is we're saved by the work of faith, by how well our faith works. And the gospel is better news than that in that we are saved by being joined to Christ. And the, the way that we're joined to Christ the way we're union, unified with him is, is through our faith. How do you reconcile that with, with statements in the Gospels where Jesus says, your faith has made you well? Um, and is it possible, and I'm just now thinking of this, is it possible that the, the faith that God gives us to be saved, to be joined to Christ, is that at all distinct from a kind of faith that experiences a miracle or a healing. And is that then that, distinct from, let's say, a gift of faith, like in 1 Corinthians 12? Right. Well, there is a gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12, and you can argue that Peter had it at the gate of the temple. He mm -hmm. walked past that numerous times every day in his way into the temple and had done so for hundreds of days. So hundreds and hundreds of times he walked past the beggar and ne never done anything for him. Uh, the reason that changed on that one day was because God gave him a gift of faith. And I think the faith movement has confused this and created a lot of trouble by suggesting that all of us have the potential of operating in a continuous gift of faith so that we can believe God for absolutely anything. And that's not the case. Uh, otherwise, that man would have been healed many months before he actually was healed. He wasn't healed till God gave a gift of faith to Peter. But I think the other thing is, if you look at, for instance, the desperate father or the, the woman who reached out to touch the, with the bleeding, who mm -hmm. reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, um, or the blind beggars that came crying out, you know, they were all people who were looking for relationship with Jesus. They were, came in an attitude of worship. And I think that that's where, you know, that's where Jesus talks about, um, the, the power of, of faith. Uh, and he looks at the blind beggar and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And well, Jesus, are you dumb? You know, uh, it, it, it should be obvious here. But the point is the man has to say something. Jesus is calling for a response. And the man has to say, Jesus, I have nothing. I'm desperate. I'm looking to you for my sight. But it comes out of relationship. And when we commoditize faith, and say, well, you know, God will just give you a new car, new house, better job, or healing, or, or whatever. And, uh, that's, you know, it's not that those things are all wrong. But if you kind of commoditize them as things that if we just get enough faith that we can possess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and all of a sudden, the Lord comes and gets dropped from the equation. You know, what needs to happen is that we come to God out of a depth of relationship with him. And when we are in a depth of relationship with him, when we're praying, when we're reading scripture, when we're thinking in terms of not what I want for my life, but what does God want for my life, then God purifies us from a lot of the, our wrong motives. And we, mm -hmm. we stop asking him for a lot of things that we would ask him for. But the things that we are asking him for are at least asked out of a 
reflection out of a depth of our own desperation because we know that we can't do anything and we cast ourselves on him and on his mercy. And that, I think, is where God really does respond to true faith and begins to move. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the woman crawling to the crowd with the issue of blood is one of those instances where Jesus says, your, your faith has healed you. And so it, it, there seems to be a tension there in that God is looking for us to believe him. And part of believing him is knowing him. And we know him in Christ. We have experience, experiential knowledge of God in, in Christ Jesus. We know his character. And so if I know his character, then my faith is in him and his goodness. So no matter what happens to me or what I, what I experience, what I go through, what I, what I do or don't have, I can trust him. And in that, I can ask for needs that I feel like I have or even desires that I have that I think are, oops, you're right. Yep. Desires that I think I have that are, um, that have good motives. So I think it's one of those things that you're, you're not necessarily going to resolve this tension. What I can say with confidence is when it comes to, when it comes to salvation, I, I think it's very wise to make sure that we're not viewing our faith as, as meritorious. Um, by our faith, we possess Christ, we receive Christ, and in him is our salvation. If I don't, if I don't say that, then what ends up happening is not only does faith become something that I'm trying to grow in so that I can get something from God, like a miracle or a new job, but it also becomes something that I'm trying to grow in so that I can get maybe more important things from God as well. Like if I have enough faith, then, then God will make me more holy. If I have enough faith, then God will you know, forgive me of, of this sin. So we, we might even start to take something like justification where God declares us righteous and go, well, I can even make that more granular and say, well, if I've got more faith, God will forgive me of, of this really wrong thing that I've done, but I don't have enough faith. So God hasn't forgiven me of that. Or maybe I've got enough faith to be justified, but not enough faith to be sanctified. I'm not, I'm not actually, so it becomes really dangerous. And our, we actually by by thinking that we're saved by faith, we actually step into another form of being saved by works. Now, how that parses out into things like healing, I don't know. But what I do know is that God God doesn't have any issue with allowing us to experience suffering because suffering is, is one of those places in which God is able to work holiness in us. And holiness seems to be what he's most concerned about in the sense that Romans eight twenty nine says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So God's already decided I'm going to, I'm going to form you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ, who is the reclamation of what it means to be a man living in the image of God. And so that's what, that's the promise God has made. God hasn't promised a new car. It'd be wonderful if he, if he blessed us with that. But what he has promised is that he's conforming me into the image of his son and he will fulfill that promise. And one of the ways that that, that formation is going to happen is the work that he does in me through my suffering. Yeah, I mean, all I, you're right in all counts. And it's just a reminder, I think, to 
that the power is not in our in what anything we do uh the power is in what he has done and continues to do and that segues into sanctification which you mentioned because that's the next thing that the the authors talk about i think rightly so um they they make the point uh that uh um quoting martin luther that uh our sanctification is just as much by grace as our justification. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the great, um, and, and, and that, um, sorry, uh, Christ is our holiness, uh, and holiness is a divine attribute. It's an attribute of God. It's not an attribute of us. And so, uh, all we get through our own efforts is our own legalistic, it reduces Christianity to legalism or moralism. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think that is a common problem in uh, Christian circles um, that we, we kind of slip into viewing sanctification as something that we have to do. And of course, that's understandable because there's all sorts of commands in the New Testament, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But um, I find it helpful uh, to remind myself that the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. And why is it that we look at the gifts of the Spirit as supernatural manifestations, which we understand have to originate in God? We can't possibly create them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, and so on, we think of those as character qualities that we need to kind of, um, you know, develop ourselves. And when we start thinking along those lines, uh, it, it legalism and moralism are just around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so w- what we have to remind ourselves is that those things are from the spirit that I can't be patient unless the Holy Spirit enables me to be patient. Every morning when I wake up, then I need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit so that I can walk in love, joy, peace, patience, and all those other things which I don't possess myself. Right. Yeah, I mean, and and this, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, who, as you said, is the holiness of the Christian. He is the holiness of the church. This is the thing that has been just wrecking me in the best way lately, is the, is the truth that, that union with Christ in being the, the basis of our salvation and that all of God's salvific blessing and benefit given to us is given in him. That means that I can't objectify the gifts of God to me. I can't have justification, but not sanctification because if the gifts are given in Christ, then by receiving Christ, I receive justification. I receive sanctification. I receive adoption, so on and so forth. And I think what this liberates us from, and Marcus Peter Johnson, the co-author of the incarnation book talks about this uh, in his book, one with Christ. And it's, it's a profound revelation. What this liberates us from is the thinking that my sanctification is the, is the right and proper response to my justification. So because God has declared me righteous, justified, I therefore now owe God a debt of gratitude to live holy, to live sanctified. That's the least that I could do for God 
is make good choices that honor him. And so all of a sudden, the good news has become just a little less good because although God declared me righteous, now it's up to me to live in accordance with what he said about me. But the truth that this is saying is no, sanctification is as much grace as justification is. And the most profound scripture that they point to, and I think this is again in, in that One with Christ book, is Romans chapter six. And this is a, a huge light bulb moment for me. So hats off to the author. And I just think this is such a liberating truth where, where he points out in, in Romans how Paul is having this imaginary conversation with, you know, with, uh, in, in a debate with somebody. Um, and it's, it's the moment in Romans six where he's, he's asking this question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Because that's, one of the uh, common misconceptions of grace is like, oh, I can, I, is that a license to sin? God's just going to forgive me. And then we all know as Christians that the answer to that is no, but it's Paul's reasoning for why the answer is no, that is so profound. He says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's profound. And the reason it's profound is because the, 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 the explanation that Paul falls back on for why grace is not a license to sin is not where we all default to in our minds. Where we default to in our minds is I owe God better. I owe God a debt of gratitude because he's declared me righteous. Therefore, grace can't be a license to sin. That's not Paul's logic. Paul's logic is don't you know that you've died and been raised again with Christ? You are so joined to him, in other words, you're so unified with him that sin was put to death by you being uh, on that cross with him. You were buried with him in baptism. And now you're enjoying newness of life in his resurrection because Christ has already been resurrected. And so in one very real sense, because you're joined to him, so also are you enjoying the benefits of that new life. And so that is a profound truth. And I think that will liberate a lot of people in their, in their, their sinful habits because they're a slave to, to God as opposed to a friend of God, as opposed to being adopted as a son or daughter of God in Christ Jesus, who actually by the grace of God can live the, the, the newness of life that we have in him because the, the unification we have with him is so real. That uh, I read that last week, and that just, oh man, it hit me. It's so beautiful. I think it's the same thing that when in the Galatian church, where there was a, a real serious problem with legalism, it's why Paul says the same thing that he says in Romans in a different way. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it's almost like we have this new life within us. It's not a life that we've created. Um, it is a life that it is the life of Jesus Christ in us. That's, mm -hmm. that's a uh, mind-blowing concept. Mm -hmm. But um, that's what Paul is saying. It's not that I've come to Christ by faith and now... You know, I'm going to 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 live in a nice moral way and and be a good person. Mm -hmm. It's I've come to Christ by faith, and part of my recognition of my helplessness is that I have I I can't ever do that. 
uh, I can only tap into his life by the power of the spirit. And it's really his life that's lived out within me. Um, and obviously that's done so in an imperfect manner because we live in this in between world where we're, we're still affected by um, the fallen human nature as Paul describes so vividly in Romans chapter seven, the good that I want to do, I can't do. You know, we, we can never quite get to where we entirely would want to be in this life. But the hope is someday we will when we see him face to face. Which is glorification. And that is the, that is the, perf it is the completion of all of the benefits God has given to us in Christ. The joy, even the joining that we have with him through him being incarnate will be fully and finally realized. The justification that we have received in him will be fully and finally declared on the day of his return. The sanctification that Christ has become for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, will be fully and finally completed. I will not be in the process of being made holy. I will be holy. My adoption will be fully, fully and finally realized in that I will really be uh, experiencing the fullness of what it is to be a son of God or a daughter of God. It, all of this really kind of messes with some of your spiritual formation theology, it, it, your, your order of salvation. Uh, and that's one of the things that I was finding myself thinking about as I was reading one with Christ. And then lo and behold, he starts talking about that in one of the chapters, because we're so often trained to think, well, first justification, then sanctification, and it's helpful to think about those things logically. It, it sure can, but it also can work against you because that's, again, that leads you down that path of now these become independent objects that God gives me when I earn them or when I've reached that place in my maturity. But actually it's, it's so much better than that. It's all in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus and it's a and that, work and that's that God why, is doing. In, in a moment, that's going to lead us on into this topic of sonship, which before we finish, we got to touch on because I think it's very important. But um, it's just that, you know, when you, you know, if you declare, let's do a 40 day fast or let's, you know, do this or that or the next thing. Um, and, 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 and fasting is very biblical. It's just that we have to be really careful Um that it doesn't become a sort of a sanctified papered over new year's resolution mm -hmm. uh where everybody is doing it because it's the thing to do and it's not done out of a conviction that that's what the lord is calling me to do mm -hmm. uh if it's what god is calling me to do then i'll do it um and i'm not saying i want to be really careful because you know for instance you as pastor might and the, your leadership with you might declare a fast uh, in, in the, the church under the leading of the Holy Spirit. That, that's your prerogative to do that. It's not mm -hmm. wrong. It's just that let's make sure that we've heard from God. Uh, you know, like I noticed there's a lot of fasting going on in January. Mm -hmm. And like, is that because the Holy Spirit speaking to a lot of people that it's supposed to be? Or is it just, well, I see other churches doing it, so we're going to do it. It's the mm -hmm. trendy thing to do. And uh, I'm not being critical of because I think, you know, everybody, including myself, needs to do more fasting. So I'm not being trying to discourage anyone from that. I'm just saying, you know, we, we, we've got to be careful that the things that we do aren't just done, you know, a, out of a superficial effort to kind of make myself look good. OK, I've done I've done a bit of a fast this year and, and now I can 
kind of go and handle my finances the way I want to, or I can skip church if I want to, or I can, you know, um, treat my wife not as good as I should be treating her because, hey, I did that fast back in January. I've got my brownie <laughs> points in, you know, like that's, that's, then you really, you're in trouble. You know, you're not getting the, the whole point of it. So, well, that's, that's re- really important. And, and again, it comes back to uh, the order of salvation, because if it's kind of up to us to logically think through what comes first, maybe we might arrive at the conclusion that our sanctification is what leads to our justification. Right. And so now all of a sudden I've made Christianity akin to every other religious system that the world has ever known. And it's just another form of climbing, climbing a ladder. And so understanding that God's gifts to us are all in Christ really is life changingly vital. And it's, it's amazing news. Um, so, Oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to say, but it's escaping me now, but that's okay. We can move on to adoption and, and close out the, the podcast with that. Cause this is, um, this is, uh, I would say probably the most striking, um, wonderful part of what we'll talk about. So, uh, he says, I'll just I have a quote here. He says, as astonishing as it ought to seem, Jesus came to do even more than secure our forgiveness, righteousness, and holiness. In other words, justify and sanctify. Indeed, these blessings are oriented around another blessing so exceedingly lavish and indescribably full of wonder that it taxes our credulity. How do you say that word? Credulity. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. I only graduated high school, everybody, so (laughs) pray for me. Uh, And even our imagination. And here's this. Here's, here's this lavish wonder here that the son of God became human to share with us what is most precious to him, life giving intimacy with his father. Mm. What a thought that Jesus came to share with us what is most valuable to him, intimacy with his father who has become our father. And as good as that is, and I'll, while you're, you know, putting your thoughts together there, as good as that is, even that, even adoption has to be seen not as the basis of our salvation, but as another benefit in Christ. One of the things that I was thinking of is, you know, the potential danger there about making that the starting line. You know, if salvation starts with adoption, then then we're at risk, I think, of saying, well, God adopts us before he makes us holy and blameless. Um, and so God, you know, sin isn't that big of a deal because God deals with that later. So as good as adoption is, it still has to be seen holistically in our unification with Christ. But it is really good news. I think that... Uh, uh, Cranfield again says, nothing more is required of us, this is commenting on Romans chapter 8, than that we should cry to the one true God, Abba Father, with full sincerity and full seriousness. That this necessarily includes seeking with all our heart to be and think and say and do what is pleasing to him and to avoid all that displeases him should go without saying. Uh, And... Um, that 
we are uh, uh, so that all that God's plan, all the law of God is aimed at achieving, all that Christian obedience is about is summed up in crying, Abba, Father, with full sincerity of heart. Mm. Uh, and, and the writers here point out uh, in the book point out that uh, adoption means that God has taken us up into the same uh, relationship with him as Christ has, which of course is mind blowing, isn't it? Yes. That uh, uh, he is, um, uh, I can't remember how they, they put it. Um, we are placed in the son, Jesus Christ, by the spirit and exactly. uh and Which so is adoption is, isn't just you know another way of referring to salvation uh it's, it's not just that it's far more than that it is the utterly unique and astounding relational involvement with the father son and the holy spirit that it encompasses or expresses and um uh and uh, I think it's Calvin that says there are innumerable other ways which God daily testifies his fatherly love toward us, but the mark of adoption is to be preferred to all of them. And here's the, the kicker that J.I. Packer, Dr. Packer, who died not that long ago, well into his 90s, preaching almost on his last day, one of the finest uh, Bible teachers of our of the last you know, generation or two. Um, he says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. This is mind blowing. That adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Mm -hmm. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Mm -hmm. And if it had been someone else that had made a statement like that, but it was a Jim Packer that made that statement. And he knew what he was talking about. And it's a Cranfield basically saying the same thing, that God includes us in Christ and adoption is just the highest privilege because it's that bringing of us into personal relationship with 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 the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're adopted into the relationship that the Son and the Father have be between themselves. Mm -hmm. That's part of our life in Christ. And out of out of that relationship and that life, everything else proceeds in our, in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I think it's mind blowing. It's something that our minds can not really properly comprehend. No. And we're only experiencing it right now to some degree, uh, uh, in the unity that we have in this age, but we will experience the fullness of what it means to be sharing in the relationship of the father, son and spirit in the age that is to come, which we can deeply look forward to. This seems to be what Jesus talked a bit about in um, his, his discourse throughout John 15, 16 and, and his prayer in, in chapter 17 as well, that we would, that we would be one in the same way that he and the father are one um, us and him and him and us. So it's certainly biblical it's not just a nice thought it's it's very very biblical thought um and it's adoption that i think gives it gives full context to what it even means to be justified or sanctified because 
I am justified as God's son. That's how righteous I, I've been declared. I am sanctified as God's son. That's how holy I am. I'm, I'm holy in the same way that Jesus Christ is holy. And it's, uh, it's amazing. They talk about, you know, how it's, it's common for, for people to refer to the Roman legal system of adoption as where we take our cues for what Paul means by being adopted. And I think certainly there's, there's truth to that. I think it's certainly possible that Paul has that in mind. And he seems to have even more deeply in mind what he talks about in Romans eight, that we cry Abba father, uh, because of our adoption to sonship by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings us into Christ. And who is Christ if not the Son? He's the eternal Son. And that's what informs our sonship. Um, so it really is glorious. It really is wonderful. Um, and I think that's a, a good place and, and, to go ahead. And, and we live in a in, in an age, uh, my friend John Arnott often ministers on the subject of the Father heart of God. Uh, and other other others have ministered on that very effectively uh, because we live in a fatherless society uh, or an increasingly fatherless society. And as Christians, we have something to offer people in the revelation of God as father. And, you know, when, when Jesus prayed Abba, um, it wasn't exactly the equivalent of saying daddy uh, which sometimes in popular preaching you get, but uh, <laughs> Daddy God, it wasn't. yeah, it wasn't. We'll just leave it at that. However, oh, Daddy was, God, could I please have a new car? It, it was a it was a term that no one uh, had used before him in that way, and it was in uh, reference so to Jesus, God. You mean in reference to God, mm -hmm. and uh, and so. Uh, you know the concept it, it would there it it in it indicates an intimacy or a level of intimacy that um you know even the the greatest of the old testament saints would not have presumed to have with god uh and jesus brings us into that intimacy and i think that that um you know the age in the age in which we live uh you know the age in which we live uh, is is a, one of fragmentation, fracturing of the family, and uh, you increasingly read of people that don't even want to have children. Um, someone in China recently was quoted as, you know, will will you know punish you for disobedience to the Communist Party, whatever it was in context, and will punish your children and their children. And the young person just said to them, "We're the last generation. We're not having yeah. any more." Yeah. And uh, and it's gone viral in certain circles in China, in spite of the censorship and, and so on that's there. And all that comes out of a sense of hopelessness of living in a godless society, where there's you know, and and man, we we we're in a dire situation in the world today. But in the church, we have the answer, mm -hmm. and uh, we have the fatherhood of God, and we can raise up spiritual fathers and mothers in the church to reflect who God is, and we can create family in a way that its church should be the most wonderful place, the most enticing place that people would ever want to be in uh, on the face of this earth. Yes, and restore their hope in having children too, because we, sure. we still should. And that all comes from the 
disaster that is the messaging around climate, um, which that would be a, a whole rabbit trail. But um, yeah, so well, there's two more. That problem is trying to control people through fear. Exactly. You know, I'm without downplaying, you know, climate emergencies and so on. It's just if you control people's attitude toward through fear, mm -hmm. uh, same way as they've done in China in relation to COVID, mm -hmm. um, it's it's going to have very very negative impact on people. I'm not even uh, sure it would be dan dangerous to downplay the emergency around the climate, uh, even just a bit. Because there seems to be uh, there seems to be perhaps some overplaying of the hand in the controlling uh, circles, and I, I do think it's it's undergirded by a, a desire to instoke fear in people, and and that leads to the opportunity it, to control. It, well, it's partly related to you know we've been told for decades and decades uh, that. Um, you know, we're all going to die because people are having too many children. And for about 20 years now, I've been saying to people, look, that we're going to face a crisis in the other direction. And that that's already, you know, population of China's has peaked. It's, it's turning down. Japan is in terminal decline because mm -hmm. they stopped having children 25, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And no society has ever prospered uh, in times of population decline. Uh, and all the dire projections of, you know, where everyone's going to starve have mm -hmm. been absolutely untrue because food production's increased more than, you know, and all this kind of thing. So there's a lot of fear related things out there that uh, are rooted in an ungodly mindset and philosophy and all the rest of it. But mm -hmm. in the midst of this fractured world that we're in, um, we do have something that we can't fix all the problems in the world, but we do have a family that we can bring people into. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm very discouraged. I know we have a big family, but I mean, and I, uh, and I'm not saying everybody should have X number of children. I'm just saying proceed by faith and not by fear. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're looking at how many children you're going to have, uh, let's have confidence in a great God and not be waylaid by fear of, you know, the climate's bad, the economy's bad, we're not going to have children. Children are an inheritance from the Lord, mm -hmm. and nothing any human philosopher or government says can cancel out the truth of the Word of God. That's exactly right. I will throw my hearty amen behind that. The book concludes with two more chapters, both of which I'm very excited to talk about. I'll give just a little sneak peek. Up next, we'll be talking about the presence of Christ in the sacraments. If we're truly joined to him, what does that look like then in water, bread, and wine, and even as well in the preached word of God? And then the final chapter is in what our unity with Christ has to say about marriage and sex. So we're going to go out with a bang, so to speak. Go out with a bang in a book that's talking about interpenetration. Well, <laughs> I'm going to make you laugh one day. I escaped trouble in Nashville, so hopefully I'll escape it in Los Angeles. <laughs> You've got a little bit more common sense than some of those guys do, so. <laughs> Only a little? I thought I had a lot. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us for today's Good Theology episode. Thank you again to Dwell Bible, our sponsor. Please do, if you have not checked that out. 
download it in your app store. And we will see you all next week. God bless you. Thank you, David. Thank you.